All right. So are we ready to record? You betcha. <laughs> Boy, howdy are we. All right. Well, Eric, this is kind of yours. You're the one who's taking the lead on this. Your yes, baby. This is my baby. And Your have I got one. some gold for you. Okay. Okay. Such as? Tupac. Dead on Everest. What? Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right. Eric. Eric. No. No. I am done. I am so sick of your stupid lies. I I can't even count anymore how many times I have been fooled by this deceit of yours. I'm done. <sighs> We're done. Yeah, this is over. You guys are really overreacting. Well, you expect us to believe that Tupac is dead on Everest. Tupac Shakur. Tupac body, Shakur is on Everest. His frozen mummified remains are on Everest. I don't know why this is so Tupac shocking. Shakur is on Mount Everest. No! Tupac! The Sherpa! 1922! Avalanche killed him and like six other people? Tupac. T-U-P-A-C. How else would you pronounce that? Oh, for f**k's sake. God damn it. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Sarah Ashley. Yay! Hooray! Everest! Yeah. Yay! And the people who climbed it. And, and the people who climbed it and, and the people who uh, died yeah. there as well. We're going to talk a lot about I have, about I have that. a question. If we're covering Everest, was there an Ever and an Everer? <sighs> that was an Eric joke. Yeah, you know that, that was. That, that was peak 16. And peak 17. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, if Eric's not going to make the bad puns, I will happily well, oblige. We're only a couple minutes into the episode. you got to give me some <laughs> some opportunities. And now we've used them all up. So <laughs> I actually did our audience a favor. Thanks, Brian. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that one. That's, that's why I'm here. That's great. So, yeah, Everest. And Sherpas were pretty freaking cool. Yeah, and... Let's not like make light of all the deaths on the mountain because no, there's we some won't. pretty tragic stuff going on. But yeah, isn't it like Tupac some... though? It's spelled exactly yeah, yeah, the yeah. same. How can we not? Isn't work it like two hundred and fifty recorded deaths on Everest? Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Recorded, yeah. It's it's pretty chilling too because you can't move a body down no. from Everest because it's too dangerous. Um, so it's, you oftentimes just leave them where they died. And well, perhaps even more. Uh, morbid is the fact that these individuals have now become landmarks mm -hmm. to their surroundings. Yeah. yeah, and and some of them died in 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 ways where they look as if they are just sitting down and, and taking a rest for a minute. And if you were not aware, you could just walk up to them, assuming it was somebody coming down the mountain in need of help. And instead, you've come across the yeah. remains of someone who died 10, 15 years ago. Thankfully, for the ones for the names we know, we. They do. There's been an effort to remember them and to acknowledge that this is so yeah. and so. There are several unnamed climbers who are whose bodies have been found on Everest, and those are recent climbers, not necessarily ones from decades when there have been many attempts to reach Everest. So. And there are many memorials uh, set up across the mountain. But you're you're right. There are a lot of unknowns. There are also folks who were Sherpas who were you know contracted and brought up there, who very little documentation existed when they when they hired them and brought them on board. And yeah. those are perhaps some of the most tragic deaths on the mountain. But I think I think we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. Why don't we start in the beginning, and then we'll we'll work our way to tragedy. So why don't we start in the beginning? Okay. <clears throat> well, if you want to die on Everest, <laughs> all you have to do is save forty five thousand dollars, because that's about how much it actually costs for travel and all that other stuff, well, gear, everything like that, to climb the mountain. Well, there's a lot of different figures thrown out by that. We're still getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so how about this? How about we go back to what it was called before it was called Mount Everest? Okay. I think that's a great place to start. So the mountain obviously has been known by the local peoples uh, that border the mountain and the two different countries, two modern countries, Tibet and Nepal, uh, who have lent their language to its names. Uh, and I say names because it, it has been referred to by a few different ones over the years. Uh, my personal favorite, and I know it's a shock that I can actually pronounce it, uh, and that is uh, Chomolangma. So Chomolangma is the Tibetan pronunciation, which means Mother Goddess of the Universe. Awesome. Not bad. Pretty yeah, pretty not, big name, considering bad. it's a big mountain, kind of makes sense. Um, the Nepalese name doesn't flow off the tongue quite as easily, uh, but I believe it's pronounced Sagar Matha. 
and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which is not unexpected from me on this podcast, uh, but considering the fact that it's not my native tongue, uh, maybe people will give me a pass this time. Mm-hmm. Could very well because it's not my native tongue, I'm actually pronouncing it correctly. I think that's just how my brain works. English words, blah, 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 but <laughs> words that are not from my, my mother tongue. Uh, I do just You just have it. a hard time in general, Eric. I, I know. I, I have a difficult life. He's uh, dyslexic. But the name translates either as forehead of the sky or goddess of the sky. I like goddess, goddess better. Yeah. I kind of like forehead. You would. Why? Well, it's very prominent. It's a big part of the face, you know. It's important. And not everybody has big foreheads. That's right. And those who do, they may be considered goddesses. Just saying. <laughs> okay. Just saying. Anyway, very cool. Have you seen Celine Dion? Have oh you seen my that forehead? God, Eric. <laughs> That's a goddess right there. Anyways, me. What I find really fascinating about Everest is that, you know, it's it's a constantly shifting piece of geology. It sits underneath two tectonic plates that are constantly pushing up on each other, right? So to think that which is what mountains are, but yes. But yes, but what's fascinating to me is it it will always be the tallest mountain unless there's like some gigantic seismic shift that completely like topples Everest. It's going to get taller and taller and it gets taller by about a quarter inch every year. Right. Which to me to think that the mountain that was climbed 60 years ago is it's a couple a inches. Terrible at math. Yeah. It, it, we're talking probably a few feet taller than it was when it was originally successfully climbed. That's that's kind of incredible. Right. It grows a total of, of 40 centimeters every 100 years or so. Sometimes it has a growth spurt. Gets that, gets that 41 in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's a very impressive mountain. It's absolutely huge. But it's still not actually the tallest mountain, technically speaking. So uh, from if we're measuring from above sea level... We're looking at 29,029 feet. Okay, so that's from sea level to the peak of the, to the top of the, of the summit. Okay. However, Mauna Kea in Hawaii, if you measure it from where it technically starts, which is down under the water, uh, is, is larger. It is, it is taller uh, in that sense. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm willing to think that you, you're supposed to measure from the base. I hear that. Yeah. I hear we that. all heard it. Anyway, getting back to the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, I do want to I do want to mention that Mauna Kea is 33,500 feet. Okay. Uh, but where it stands above sea level is just 13,000. Just 13,000. Just 13,000. Not that big. But well uh, well below where Everest becomes really, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll talk a lot about mm-hmm. that. So let's return to the name. Because we kind of we kind of got off track a little bit talking about size. Let's get back to name. Uh, Mount Everest, which is what it really should be called, uh, is named after George Everest. And George Everest, absolutely, is he not George Everest then? Well, exactly. That's the thing. At the time in which Everest was named, that was the pronunciation of the surname Everest or Everest, as it was known. So we've all been saying it wrong regardless whether we've been using the proper you know, native names or or the British name. We've all been saying it wrong for a long time. So who cares at this point? Did probably anybody... not the British. The British have probably been saying it correctly. Did anybody even think to ask the mountain what he wants to be called? <laughs> or she. Or she. Remember, yeah, she could be is, a goddess. That's true. The, the mighty forehead. That's true. Um, Everest, what do you want to be called? We hear a whisper. I prefer Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> or Donna. <laughs> Donna's good. Uh, no, the British. <laughs> the mountain called Donna. <laughs> Mount Donna. Mount Donna. I like it. Actually, there probably is a Mount Donna out there somewhere. Listeners, if you live near or on Mount Donna, wherever it might be in the world, uh, let us know if it wants to be known as Everest, because that would be funny. <laughs> and ironic. And ironic. Uh, however, uh, George Everest, and, and the term, I believe the pronunciation is now Everest. These days, I think the British also call it Everest. I think just at the time it was pronounced Everest. Oh, wow. So there is Mount Donna Buang. Boing? Buang? That's, oh. uh, is there already one? It's in Warburton, Victoria. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's... it's... So Canadian listeners. No, Australia. Huh. Of course, there's more than one Victoria. Huh? Yep. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. 
Well, our, our Australian listeners can chime in. Yep, there you go. If uh, Mount Donna wants to be known as Everest. And how the hell do you pronounce that? Can I just also say that that's no win for American English, that we that the British actually caved in on a pronunciation of something Possibly, to have the American yeah. pronunciation? Yeah. Well, no, I think I think that is the current British pronunciation. I think it as languages evolve and surnames evolve, it just evolved in that way. I'm still going to call it an American win. Okay. In typical American exceptionalist <laughs> fashion. I'm so going to say in, that in we typical did it. British fashion, they named it whatever they wanted. And in typical American fashion, we took we're taking credit, credit, for, credit it. for it. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Excellent. We're all squared away. Yep. <laughs> Go on. So Sir George Everest, who was um, the Surveyor General of India, who, who worked in India for many years and did a lot of great work. That's to say he's the high map maker, basically. Essentially, yes. His yeah. successor thought it would be great a great honor to name the, the largest mountain in the world after his his former boss or his his predecessor i don't know if he actually worked for him but his predecessor uh george everest was not in favor of this at all he thought it would have been a great idea if they actually named it you know chumalungma or any of the other local uh names and pronunciations for yeah it. so up till his seems death, much more respectful doesn't it yeah in fact he objected directly to the royal geographical society that he did not want his name to to be adopted for it yet uh, they pushed forward, and uh, and here we are today. Like, Everest is white enough with all that snow. You might as well, you know. <laughs> have it be... Might as well name it after the whitest person in the country. Exactly. I mean, the only, you can only get more white if you name him like name it like Mount Smythe or something like that. <laughs> Mount Possible Smythe. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, now, the mountain itself before this was referred to simply as, as Peak 16. Uh, within that that great geographic or geological survey of the Himalayas that was done. God, it sounds like the name of a horror movie. I actually kind of like Peak 16. I I don't know what it is about it. Just it kind of works for me. Uh, but regardless, it is now known as Everest today, and it is uh, one of the most recognizable names of any ge- geological landmark on the planet. Uh, it's also quite impressive to to behold. The climbing of this mountain and why people would choose to do this has been a subject of debate for a very long time. And, you know, if you ask any mountaineer, they'll give you the typical response because it's there. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's there, we climb it. Yeah. And I'm kind of on the fence with this because I definitely see the romanticism in mountaineering. Right. I see the extreme overcoming of of human limitations to conquer a mountain to conquer something that has been there for millions of years before man uh ever stood upright uh but at the same time knowing the extreme dangers and risks that go into not just everest but many other difficult mountains around the world it makes me wonder why any sane person would willingly put themselves at risk like this the sense of exploration yeah i buy that if it had never been you know, climbed before, but maybe for self-exploration, I would get that. I think it's the the ultimate endurance test is what sure. it would be, right? It's the absolute test of what you're physically capable of doing. And Everest is there's no truer mountain on in the world where that where that stands true. Uh, what we're talking about is an elevation so high that you're quite literally in the jet stream. You look down at 747s are flying around the world at the same altitude that you are having, you know, breakfast. Uh, and there's a reason why cabins and planes are pressurized, <laughs> right? Uh, the There's no air up there. Or well, there's air. Little. It's just, it's very, very thin. It's about one fourth uh, the amount of oxygen yeah. that you're going to get at sea level. And what's crazy is that people climb the, without the, the aid of additional oxygen. And like, that's just like... Those people are stupid. Those people, you're just in. Well, those people are highly controversial, is what it comes down to, and, and this has been um, a topic since the the mountain was properly surveyed in the 1920s, before the first true attempts to actually summit the mountain were started. In the 1920s, the British sent their survey teams, accompanied by the very famous George Mallory, who we're going to talk about in a moment, who's an incredibly important part of this mountain's sure. modern history. And during those times, it was discovered right away that once you reach the death zone, the part of the mountain where that's where you start to feel the most extreme physical uh, effects on your body. That's where things like brain embolisms and heart attacks are extremely common. Uh, 
where you start suffering from things like altitude sickness if you haven't been properly acclimatized. Yeah, that's why you have to go to base camp for like two or three weeks. Or a whole month is yeah. what's now recommended and almost uh, standard for just about anyone who's visiting, unless you're a, a local, unless you're a Sherpa and you essentially live at a, a very high elevation and you have your whole life. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about folks from like Florida flying out there. They couldn't get any lower to the sea unless you were yeah. like, you know, a, a born uh, as a scuba diver. You essentially have to, your body has to create an entirely extra pint of blood so it can carry more oxygen to climb the mountain. It's crazy. Everything you do at sea level is all that much more difficult to do on Everest. Even just walking a mile mm -hmm. uh, could take you four hours, depending on how high up on the mountain you are. And the higher you go, the more and more difficult it becomes. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really an incredible place and it does push the body to the extreme limits. But as a, as a climb, it's really not all that difficult. That's what Mallory and his expeditions found initially, that at the lower elevations, it was actually very easy to accomplish. Uh, but once you get above a certain point, it's always snowing. It's always ice and cold. And that's when you have the possibility to slip and fall, which has led to so many deaths on the mountain. And once you start getting comfortable, once you start getting acclimatized, you think that you're out of danger. And that's almost always when people die. Mm. Yeah. Very rarely do people die on the ascent to the summit. Mm -hmm. It happens. People lose their footing. People slip and fall. People suffer from altitude sicknesses, what have you. But almost always, you, we, we hear report after report of people getting comfortable, getting exhausted, and then trying to come down. And that's when they slip and fall to their death. Well, what's crazy, too, is the first time when this was really ever... I mean, it was, it's been documented, obviously, but the first time we got to see, in a way, up close and personal, this was really in, like, the late 90s with the whole, uh, what was the basis for John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. So the 96 disaster, yeah, I got a whole piece planned for that. We're no gonna, worries. We're going to definitely talk about it. And there's that. an IMAX film that goes along with it. That's the, that's well, the crazy part. kind of. Uh, there was an IMAX film that was filmed, coincidentally, at the same time exactly. that the events were happening, the, which yeah. largely became the focus of that as have many documentaries and other films and books written on the subject. The 96 one is notorious for many reasons. Yeah, and we'll, um, I know we're going to get to that, but I just thinking about, like, if you guys will ever want to see the detail of that, yeah. that's going to be your best resource, I think, to, Absolutely. to check out. Absolutely. What I want to do, though, if we can just kind of deviate for a moment, is, is talk about uh, Mallory's attempt on Everest. So uh, George Mallory, who was an extremely accomplished mountaineer, um, was brought to Everest on more than one occasion, uh, first to help survey the mountain, and then later in 1924, uh, he made a very determined effort to actually summit. The 22 expedition before that was met with tragedy initially, which Mallory blamed himself for. That was the death of seven Sherpas, including Tupac. Um, and it was... Tupac forever. Tupac forever. Uh, it was uh, very eye-opening for him, that expedition. The resistance to want to use oxygen was present in those first few. And this is something that truly woke them up to the realization that oxygen in this case uh, was okay. It was not... Uh, well, because mountaineers around the world who, who you know, heard of this balked at the idea. They said, we've been climbing mountains without oxygen for hundreds of years. You never climbed Everest, though. Exactly. And that was Mallory's point. And he thought the same thing. He thought going to Everest, bringing oxygen was really uh, an insult to the entire sport. Uh, however, he quickly changed his mind. And in the following expedition in 24 not only took oxygen with him, but partnered himself uh, with a young Andrew Sandy Irvine, who was an expert at using the equipment. Perhaps not as experienced a mountaineer as he needed to be, and we'll talk about that and how that may have impacted them ultimately. Right. But uh, was, knew the equipment and knew how to keep them uh, alive. So what, what goes wrong in the 24 expedition? Because we really don't get a successful expedition until Edmund Hill Hillary, right? Right. Uh, in 24, we had a couple different attempts to summit by other expedition members who were there. They partnered and paired themselves up and attempted to each conquer uh, the, the summit. Uh, the first two were turned back 
um, due to physical limitations and poor weather. However, on the day in which they uh, decided to ascend, uh, that is Mallory and, and Irvine, the weather was extremely favorable. Um, it was Mallory's chance and his last chance to do this on the mountain because he was 37 at this point. The chances of him coming back to Everest for another expedition were pretty much zero. And so he was determined to get on that summit. He was going to be the first person to do it. Uh, and if I'm a young Irvine and I'm partnered with this guy, of course I'm going to go. This guy knows what he's doing. He's been climbing mountains and he was known like Mallory was known for being that guy who could somehow, some way pass the unpassable. So if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be him. And the other team members observed them making extremely good time and extremely good pro progress. And if you, uh, if once you start getting up to those higher ele elevations and, and Everest and you get into that death zone, Everest, when being approached from the south side, uh, has two, uh, two very large steps that have to be conquered first. So it's kind of a gentle grade, and then it leads you up to an extremely sharp um you know cliff face that you essentially have to ascend and there are two of these on the way up at least that's what they thought initially we now know there are three the famous hillary step that gets you finally to the summit uh and they were observed uh, at a lower elevation climbing that second step and and passing it from known good eyes you know somebody who was very experienced who had great vision who was using the proper equipment he was tracking their progress and even though he went back on his story, eventually he said they probably got past the first step, not the second. Later, close to his death, he recanted that and said, no, it really was the second step. Why he backtracked the first time almost certainly was due to pressure from the fact that, you know, sure. H Hillary had already done it at this point. Right. Or was going, someone else is going to do it. Um, but I, I'm, I tend to believe that they made it past that first step at the very least. Uh, now, an ice axe was discovered near the first step uh, that is believed to have belonged to Mallory. Because after they got past that second one, they were observed moving into clouds, and at that point, they disappeared off the mountain, and nobody knew what happened to them uh, for another 75 years. Yeah. It was only, only, they were only guessing at that point. So, did they, when did they, did they actually find Mallory's body? They did. Uh, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mallory. Sorry. That's okay. I know it's exciting. A Mallory sickle. <laughs> uh, really seriously. Mm -hmm. So they, they found this ice axe and many people believed that they must have perished in or around there and didn't get any further. But there was a group of individuals who were committed to believing that they must have gotten further, if not actually to the summit. And in 1999, an expedition was led to find the remains and hopefully also find the camera that was known to be carried by oh. Irvine. If they'd made it to the top, there would potentially be remaining photographic evidence inside that camera. As long as it hadn't been exposed to light, that film could potentially have been developed. And there was reports from a Chinese mountaineer who had summited Everest back, I believe in the late seventies or early eighties, uh, to have founding, to have found, uh, a the remains of a uh, of a of a British man who had been dead for years based on the the condition of his clothing, and he described the body uh, as being you know mummified and and sun bleached and essentially uh, describing a perfect landmark for them to look for. So they knew approximately where he may have fallen based on the discovery of that ice axe. It had to have been somewhere probably underneath that. Uh, and they knew an approximate description of what the body currently looked like. So they did their best to figure out where this gentleman had been camping on Everest back all those years ago. And within just a few hours of reaching the, the spot where they thought it was, uh, they discovered the body. And it was laying face down in the, in, the, in, the, in the ice and snow. It had been partially uncovered by the current you know, weather. And as they approached... And you see bodies of Mal, you see pictures of Mallory's body online. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, he is perfectly preserved. Uh, the The clothing was undeniable. This was clearly from early mountaineers' clothing. And as they got closer to the body and started to examine it, they found a name tag sewn right into the shirt that said G. Mallory well, on it. Dang. 
So it, this was the smoking gun. There was no way around this. And as they began to examine the body further, they were able to remove artifacts from it, including Mallory's pocketbook that had, you know, documentation and papers in it, including an unpaid bill for the equipment that he had. <laughs> Whoops. Um, and a pair of mountaineering goggles, sun goggles, that were found in near perfect condition in his pocket. The belief then, based on the way the body was found, based on the documentation found on the body, and the location of the ice axe, presents us a few different theories. One, Mallory and Irvine, at some point after passing the second step, determined that the third step was too difficult to, to do on their own and decided to leave with the information that they had. At some point, as they tried to descend down the mountain, uh, Mallory seems to have fallen, either him or Irvine. They were tethered together with a rope. A rope was found around Mallory's body where it had shown clear traumatic abrasion from a fall, so something tugging along with him as he was falling, almost certainly his partner. And uh, he then comes falling to his death. His other ice axe, however, or his ice axe, hard to tell, if that ice axe up there was actually really his or not, seems to have hit him in the face, as on Mallory's body oh. there was a very large gaping hole on the forehead that almost perfectly matches up with the ice axe. Yeah. So, you know, he, other than that, the body was in relatively good condition. He only had a few fractures in his legs. Uh, he may have even yeah. potentially survived the fall, and initially anyway. Well, there are some, from what we can see from the pictures that are left, yet yeah, most of his body, is, you're absolutely right, it looks almost like it, it just died, but yeah. there are also parts that are noticeably missing. Like one, his um, his right leg is is pretty much only bone at this point. Well, there are certain parts of the body that have been exposed to the elements more. Right, so and they than have others. decomposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I hate to say it. There's also a couple holes in his butt. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you know, regardless, it, it was it was a tragedy. Um, but the other possibilities are that the two of them actually made it to the summit. And it is believed that's possible if only because Mallory was such an amazing mountaineer, because they also had oxygen, and on Mallory's nearly perfectly preserved remains was absent a picture of his wife. A picture mm -hmm. of his wife that he was known to carry in his front pocket, his breast pocket, that he was intending to leave on the summit. Oh, interesting. Now, considering the state of all the other documents that were on the body, the amount of equipment and other things found on him, the likelihood of that picture remaining in his pocket would have been extremely high. Now, of course, that's just circumstantial evidence. There's there's no possible proof. Uh, there's no evidence that that picture still remains on the summit today, nor would it. Uh, the weather would have certainly destroyed it, uh, if not preserved inside you know, the remains that had been covered with snow. Uh, the other possibility is that Irvine handed over his remaining oxygen to Mallory, knowing that Mallory was a stronger climber, and tried to support him the best he could from a lower elevation as Mallory attempted to uh, summit. And so, that Mallory, or then Mallory falls to his death, and Irvine later dies of exposure somewhere else on the mountain. So the question I have is, has it been accepted at this point that he... Did it successfully reach the summit, just not go back down? No, not, no. not at all. In okay. fact, there's no evidence... To suggest that, there's just a possibility that he may have. There's no strong evidence. Okay. Even if strong evidence was to be found because he did not survive his descent, uh, he is not going to be given credit for being the first to truly summit. Uh, apparently, and this and this is also heatedly debated, because there are a lot of people who have died on their way down, and to say that you have to survive, you have to live after summiting in order for it to count doesn't seem very fair to me, nor to the families yeah. of the people who have died in, in their attempt to do so. Seriously. I think if you got to the top, you got, you got to, the, to top. the top. Um, I guess proof that you got to the top is the is the only thing in question, and no greater proof than you returning. Well, when the Chinese did it, they didn't take any pictures when they did it the first time, and people balked at that and said it was just Chinese propaganda, communist propaganda at the time, and that they would not... Uh, that they didn't actually make it, but all of the evidence from you know eyewitness interviews and other uh, circumstantial evidence has now been accepted that they did make it to the top. Did they leave Mallory's body up there? Absolutely, as is pretty much tradition on the yeah. mountain. Removing remains 
oftentimes leads to more dead. Mm-hmm. Because it's too dangerous to yeah. transport. Other remains have attempted to be removed from the mountain, and it has resulted in tragedy as well. Yeah, I mean, I but typically speaking, like people will kind of like move the bodies off the trail a little bit. And... Mm, sometimes they will, but they oftentimes then end up as different landmarks. They're yeah. still visible in many cases. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they are just thrown over the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times with Mallory, now he's been he's been given a, a kind of a makeshift burial with stones uh, in the place where he lay today. So, tragic end to an amazing person who may very well have summited uh, Everest. We don't really know. The person we do know to have summited was Sir Edmund Hillary. And right by his side, uh, just as important, just an equal member of this team, was Tenzing Norgay, uh, who is probably the most famous Sherpa uh, in the world. Yeah. And not just for doing it first, but for being truly an equal partner with Hillary and his ascent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sherpa people, and it's so important that we that we talk about them for a moment, uh, are a very unique individuals in, in Tibet, in Tibetan, uh, both in Nepal and Tibet, the, the ethnic groups kind of yeah, cause, go all over the place. Because Norgay was Nepali. He was, yeah. yes. Uh, but Sherpa quite literally means Eastern people in Tibetan, so Sher meaning East and Pa meaning people. So you can't translate it any other way. No big forehead here. This is clearly uh, Eastern people. And the original groups of of uh, Sherpa have now expanded and given rise uh, to four main Sherpa clans. Uh, and the, the truth is nobody really knows exactly where Tenzing Norgay uh, originated from he doesn't even know <laughs> the records of his of his birth are very uh sketchy uh he was almost sort, certainly born in north northeastern nepal um but there are also suggestions that he may have been born in tibet and he honestly just didn't know mm. um but he like the other sherpa people had a tremendous respect for the mountains around them they were sacred mountains holy mountains these were holy places and being that you live in a such high elevation, your body just is naturally acclimatized to that environment. And therefore, climbing these mountains tends to be a, a less arduous, arduous task for the Sherpa people than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So they became invaluable as guides and as porters um, and really remained that way while the British were there and attempting these expeditions. And we're probably actually the first people to climb Everest, possibly. Thank you. I was just about to bring that up. We we don't have any ancient records of of an ancient person summiting Everest. But if it was going to happen... because they did it so often, they didn't even think it was a big deal <laughs> enough to write it down. No, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> um, if it happened, however, for whatever reason, it, it never was written or passed into folklore or legend. But if anyone was going to do it, of course it was going to be the Sherpa people of uh, Tibet or Nepal. Um, I would love to think of that as being like maybe the Sherpa's like best kept secret from white people. (laughs) This is like actually somebody else. They think think that they're the first to climb Everest. We'll just let them have their moment. Well, you know, it's funny because um, Tenzing Norgay was not his original name. Um, He was born... Don't tell me a white person changed that too. No, he he actually his parents chose uh, oh, okay. picked, picked it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, Namgalya, one. Oh god, I can't even do it. I'm not even gonna try. Anyway, go to Wikipedia. It's on there. Um, <laughs> I'm not just it's so disrespectful. I'm not even gonna try. Yeah. So uh, his parents later did change his name after a visit um, to a temple, and the suggestion was that they change his name to something that means uh, a wealthy fortunate follower of religion which is what Tenzing Norgay translates to so it was a change that was made when he was young uh, long before he ever had any aspirations of, of climbing Everest however yeah. very appropriately named because he would like I said go on to become the most famous Sherpa of all time mm-hmm. um, now Hillary uh, was a very interesting individual as well uh, Hillary who was from uh, New Zealand uh, was again an experienced mountaineer. They have some of the most incredible and beautiful mountains in New Zealand. It's an incredibly rich geological location here on Earth. And he was just an overall really awesome person. Like he had just such a great positive 
outlook. Uh, he was so resistant originally um, to the uh, to the uh, wars that were being fought, both the First and Second World War, and uh, particularly to the Second World War in which he, he would eventually serve, but he didn't want to sign up initially. Uh, it wasn't until the draft happened later that he was kind of brought into it. He was just so morally opposed to those sort of things, uh, to fighting. Uh, and it set kind of a, the tone for him as being just a very open and friendly and um, progressive individual. He had a great deal of respect for the locals, for their language, for their traditions and customs. He engaged in those customs himself to show respect and to be a part of what to them was a spiritual moment being on that mountain. Mm -hmm. I, I truly believe that Hillary felt as if it was a, a spiritual event for him as well. And, um, you know, the, the fact that him and Norgay did it together and he gave so much respect to Norgay in that process, uh, just again, speaks. And I believe they both, mountains. uh, was, I don't think Norgay though was knighted or, or was given any like real major honors. No, in not, not, that, not in the Western world. Yeah. Hillary, of course, gained the fame. Yeah, yeah. But think of the time, right? So we're talking about... Um, 1953. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm just saying that's very typical of the time. It was the know. year my dad was born. Well, there you go. I think it was the year my mom was born, actually. Interesting. I believe it was also the year that Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. So a lot of things happened in 1953. Yeah. One of them being the climbing of Mount Everest. Um, it was a big year. For the British colonies and England as a whole. But, uh, you know, obviously British Hillary... Commonwealth, I should say. <laughs> obviously Hillary, uh, his, his, as he's most well known for in the Western world, is climbing the mountain. But what he's most now well known for in Nepal uh, is for all the schools that he helped open. And the philanthropy that he did to support the, the Sherpa people. Uh, that's where his true legacy lie in the country where the mountain he scaled is and i love that i just i just I think love it's so that. cute They're like oh yeah the biggest mountain in the world yeah we, yeah he climbed that but look at the schools he opened <laughs> <laughs> and if you guys want to learn more about nepal we did an entire episode about nepal yeah i am between two boulders <laughs> yes you guys did a wonderful job on i that can't episode. believe we Thank crammed you. an entire country's history into one podcast we were moving fast though. so like, fast i think people thought their players were broken like we were playing at like one and a half speed because we i know were, it we was were really good it was kind of like we had to skip over a few collapsed governments because that just keeps happening so it was just yeah it was a mess oh it was fun though so let's fast forward a bit shall we sure um because I think one thing that's very interesting is we were talking about the the 1996 incident, the massacre, the catastrophe that, that that was. There's an interesting connection between the 53 expedition and that. Because I believe that Tenzing's son was on the expedition that took place in 96. Or maybe he was with the IMAX crew, it's, is what it was. Uh, I'm not sure about that. That didn't come up in my research, but it doesn't mean that that, that didn't happen. Absolutely. It wouldn't surprise me. Well, per Wikipedia, oh, it says that his son's there, but ah. you can only take that with a grain of salt. No, I, I think that, well, if, especially if he's with an IMAX crew, he's probably on film. The only thing I want to bring up is that, yeah, because he talked about in the IMAX film, his father, and there's oh, there's well, there video footage, of, well, video, it's film footage of uh, him and Hillary uh, oh, okay. on the mountain. Um, not the son and Hillary, but rather he refers to it and they have they cut to yeah. some of the footage they filmed on that expedition. Got it. Um, it's uh, Jamling Tenzing Norgay. Correct. Norgay, so. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, yeah, 96 was a particularly bad year for the mountain. Uh, a lot of people lost their lives. And it's very, um, or at least it has now since been discussed to death about how epidemic it was uh, and reflecting the, uh, the fact that people who were not experienced, who should never have been on that mountain were mm -hmm. there because they had deep enough pockets. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the first attempts to summit and the failure that met year after year after year, the only people who were really trying this were people who belonged on that mountain who had the experience to do this. Yeah. Nobody else could at that time. Right. But once they figured out how to do it, they made the mountain more accommodating. Yeah. Uh, by adding in ladders and, and rungs and place and, you know, footholds that weren't All there previously. All put in by the Sherpas. 
put him by the Sherpas, exactly. Who went out of their way to make it more accommodating. <laughs> and, and lost their lives in yeah. cases to do yeah. so. Uh, not to say that the Sherpas only. I mean, there were other individuals who yeah, were not yeah, sure. Sherpas who, who who helped and lost their sure. lives, too. I know. It's just that, like, I know primarily a lot of the areas where people couldn't go previously, the Sherpas actually ventured out themselves oh, to create, yeah. like, ways for people to get through. Exactly. And, and there's a lot of different ways to approach Everest. Mm-hmm. The, the south and the north are the most common. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because of the fact that the Nepalese government uh, did not allow foreign tourists in until 1950 mm-hmm. and the tibetan autonomous region as part of china has become also even more restrictive now yeah uh, the south the southern approach is the is the easiest there are other ways to go yeah but the southern approach is the easiest and because of that it became this funnel again for tourists right. so now we've made the mountain more accommodating mm-hmm. we've opened up an easier passage that's now easy to get to yeah uh and so these companies like, you know, the Adventure Corporation, who were who was one of the companies that was involved in the 96 disaster, they made this a tourist destination. Oh, yeah. Seriously. It's not like it's going to like a Hawaiian resort. Yeah. It turns my stomach. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, it's no surprise that the death toll has continued to rise and not go down as a result of this. The more people you have the more on the mountain, the more likely they are to, to perish. Now, there has still been, you know, 5,000 some odd successful climbs of the mountain by some 3,000 people. And when you consider over 250 have died, you do the math, you know, that doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. It really is, because we're talking about human lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that 96 disaster was just, so many things went wrong. Yeah. Uh, John Krakauer, who... We we mentioned earlier wrote that book into thin air or is it in, into thin air I believe yeah, that's correct yeah uh, he was a reporter who was brought on board uh, quite by chance um, because the expedition leader for adventure consultants excuse me which is the name of the the company that um, uh, that Rob Hall who was the the owner and an expedition leader of um, he's the one who contracted him and brought him on board. In hopes of him writing actually a favorable article for him. He was a journalist. And uh, that was typical. That was the type of folks that you were seeing kind of coming up here. But into that, in addition to that, you know, people like school teachers mm-hmm. and, um, you know, blue collar jobs and anyone who could just save up enough money yeah. to get there. You know, in some cases, $45,000, $50,000 they're paying these people to keep them alive. Yeah. And nicer companies like Adventure Consultants usually had, you know, real nice equipment set up for them and had, you know, all sorts of great food and accommodations as best they could on Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they themselves still spent probably seven or $8,000 in mountaineering equipment. So this yeah. is, this is this it's a pricey endeavor. Yeah. This is a lot of money. It's basically like, as I was reading one thing, it was like, you basically, it's like you're saving up to buy a whole car outright. Yeah. For, for an opportunity to go to, to Mount Everest and possibly die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was a tremendous amount of pressure to get these people on the mountain and to get them to summit. And in 96, that's exactly what they ended up doing. There were 34, 35, something like that, people who were up on that mountain that day. Wow. That's a lot. That should have never happened. It got to the point when there was a there was a backup. Mm-hmm. People were waiting to summit because they had to wait for other people to get down. And time is precious on Everest. Yeah. Because if you don't have that 2 o'clock turnaround time... There's a good chance you're going to die. Yeah. Everest becomes a beast at night. The weather patterns on Everest are unpredictable. And that's why people always try to summit in May, because that is the the most predictable time. Mm-hmm. But even still, a monsoon comes sweeping up out of nowhere, catches these guys as they're trying to come down off the mountain. Um and many of them end up dying as exposed to the elements. Yeah. Some slip and fall to their deaths and never to be seen again. Their body's not recovered. Rob Hall survived his first night uh, coming down off of the, the third step, uh, but wasn't able to descend any further. Uh, he survived long enough, however, into the next day, now totally immobilized by frostbite, to call back to base camp. So the people who were down there were listening to him, and they, they made it made it so that he could make a phone call out to his wife who was pregnant at the time. Right. And that that is 
documented it in explicit detail in Into Thin Air, and it's just, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And the one thing they did do is they decided what the name of their child was going to be. So it's kind of beautiful in a way that the last conversation he got to, yeah. they got to do that. But, yeah. but you know, it's, it's very sad. Uh, but Rob Hall made some mistakes. And I'm sure he was sitting there thinking about that, thinking about the impact that it would have on him and the future of his of his family mm-hmm. and the future of the families of the people who would lose their lives. And I'm not putting this all on Rob Hall. Don't get me wrong. The guy was an experienced mountaineer. He was the first person to summit the mountain five times who was not a Sherpa. Yeah, well, and his, and his friend who was with him, Scott Fisher, was also yes. a really highly experienced climber too. Exactly. Um, they just got really bad luck is what it was. Well, it was well, more it was, than that. It was a storm. A storm stranded them. But it was more than that. If they had not backed up the mountain the way they did, full of tourists who had no, some of them had no place in being there, they would have been able to summit appropriately and get back down before that weather system moved in. Now, I'm not saying they could have predicted the weather, but I'm saying they knew the dangers on the mountain and they knew what they were getting themselves into. And that's why it's caused so much controversy and so much review of this process now. Um, And it has gotten better. It has gotten better. However, it doesn't mean that tragedies still can't happen. And of course, the terrible avalanche in uh, 2015 as a result of the Nepalese earthquake, which led us to our Nepal episode, mm-hmm. uh, which at that point, uh, or to this point now, is the, the largest single number of deaths on the mountain. I believe it's 17. Uh, was horribly tragic. And those people were stranded up there uh, for quite some time and had to eventually be helicoptered out and rescued. And you can watch the video, not of these grisly deaths, thankfully, but of, of, of a team who was at a lower elevation as the snow was descending upon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on YouTube, and it's terrifying. And you can only imagine what it was like for the people who were caught up yeah. higher. Yeah. So this mountain, tremendous as it is, deserves respect. Oh, for sure. And uh, And that's where we... That's where we are with Everest today. Well, can I say real quick about yeah. 96, just to put some a brighter Please. spin on some of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a Sherpa, Ang Rita, who was the first person to summit the mountain 10 times. Yeah. Between 83 and 96. Um, uh, Hans Kammerlander, who is not German, but is actually from Italy, uh, climbed the mountain on the north side in a record ascent time of 17 hours from base camp to the summit, which, which is, is insane, crazy. And he did it with, he did it alone without oxygen and he skied down. Yeah. Which I believe he actually became like the second fastest, uh, descent as well. Yeah. And then I love this one. Goran, Goran Krop of Sweden became the first person to ride his bike all the way from his house in Sweden, <laughs> do, 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 all the way to the mountain, <laughs> scale it alone without an oxygen tank, yeah. and then bicycle most of the way back home. I'm surprised he didn't make it all the way back. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> like, that's he, just... Well, the problem Got is he a had flat a flat. Tire. Yeah, he had a flat, and the, and the inner tube was punctured, so I, it was screwed. I want to say it was like maybe he was like two blocks away from his house. <laughs> and he was just like, never mind, I'm getting a ride for the rest of the way. <laughs> He got an Uber the rest of the way. Right? Yeah, I'm sticking the same thing. <laughs> of course, but in Sweden, it's known as Uber. 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 <laughs> uh, and, you know, that is a good point. Let's try not to end it on such a sad and tragic note. Yeah, I mean, there there are some pretty, there have been some pretty amazing feats. And sure. if, if you are looking for some amazing demonstrations in, like Brian said, endurance, um, athleticism, you know, just kind of pushing the human spirit yeah you know it's it's pretty crazy i mean yeah i, yeah, I do i still one out of 15 people will lose their life yeah trying to trying to summit everest yeah so i mean it's, it's dangerous it has it is and, and but a 13 year old girl did it that and uh we also had um uh let's see it was uh eric uh weinmeyer uh from the u.s who was the first blind summiter wow um, the first I mean, you really can't see much there anyway with all the snow, so. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, the first winter ascent, which was in February of 1980. February uh, 17th, actually, which I always think of because it's Sean's birthday, so. Mm. Oh, that's right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Zeska Skinski and uh, Christoph uh, Wielik, Wieliki, I think, excuse me. Uh, they're from Poland. Mm-hmm. They're the first to ascend in winter, which is insane. Oh, why the hell would you do that? It gets to about 
what is it, 65 below yeah. Fahrenheit. What was that, 40 degrees Celsius like below, that. I think, in the winter. Not good. Um, the oldest female senator was 73 years old. And the first one uh, was Genko uh, Tabi from Japan in 1975. So, again, amazing feats of, of, mm-hmm. of human endurance and spirit and will. But uh, make sure you have your will filled out before you go. Yeah. Yes. Because it is indeed. very dangerous. Make your peace with whatever God you yeah. worship or, or choose not to worship for that matter. <sighs> so, what, a, what a mountain of a topic that was. And oh, God. the only thing that would top that would be a mountain of feedback. This week in listener feedback. Did you see what I did there? I did. Yeah, I was clever. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, we all saw it. Thank you. I work hard for these things. These are good. These <laughs> All right, get to the feedback. feedback. Our first piece of feedback. First off, lots of email feedback. Thank you for that. Uh, Came from us about a week and a half ago from Andy. Subject, spreading the word of nerd. Two days ago, I sent my best friend It's All Relative and told her to listen to it because it's long, continuous, bleep, amazing. So good. So, so good. Eric. Thank you. Well done, sir. You knocked I, it out I thought of the it was one of my worst one. episodes ever, personally. But thanks, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> the next day, I get a tech. I got a text reading. So I've, I've, uh, all I've done today is listen to this podcast. Apparently, she hasn't stopped yet and has been receiving continuous gushing. And I've been receiving continuous gushing via text message about how good the show is. Three days in, and she's already trying to make someone else listen. Yay! Uh, you can add one listener in Denver previously memphis and one in durango on the map ladies and gentlemen durango is sean's hometown right yes, now there's more than sure one is. <laughs> yes there's, there's two there's, now in durango yes there's more than one durangatang who's listening to our episodes <laughs> i have also yet another way that nerds in colorado can indirectly support the show if in durango go to steamworks eat the maui wowie which is a pizza there it's awesome drink the beer and no we're probably a one trip in there over this weekend before we launch on the grand canyon she had a couple of ideas that she wanted to share with us. One was that an idea for the history of Western exploration, talking about um, Ed Abbey, John Muir, Everett Roos, and the one-armed geologist that started it all, John Wesley hmm. Powell. John Wesley Powell, I should say. Interesting story of disappearances, nearly dying in canyons and on adventures, and hits at the beginnings of and current state of the environmental movement in America from the Sierra Club to Earth First. Plus, it can tie back to Teddy Roosevelt with the founding of national parks and pull through the modern era and the fights between um, against building dams and mining and all that. I would go on, but I'm tapping out on this phone, and I've been getting tired of my thumbs. She did all this on her phone. It's a long email. Uh, in nerdiness, Andy. P.S. Watch the P.O. Box. I'm sending a picture for the Nerd Cave from the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It'll take a minute, though, because there are a few ways of rafting and mule trains involved to get it out to the real world. That's awesome. Sweet. That's cool. great. That is mm-hmm. so awesome. And um, I fully endorse Steamworks Brewing Company, by the way, um, having been there myself. Awesome beer. Really, really great food. I fully endorse Steam, uh, and therefore, by association, this company as well. I fully endorsed mules. Mm. Yeah. They're they're pretty cool. They're they really are. cool animals. Yeah. They have um, lovely eyelashes. <laughs> they do. Uh, we have a newer listener, Alista. Or Alista. I don't know how its name's pronounced. She wrote us actually two emails. We're going to read the first one, and then take a break, and then we'll read the second one. Um, because she wrote us two, two, two days apart. Go figure. Uh, this one says, uh, just a friendly thumbs up. Hello from an American history nerd in Spain. I'm a relatively new listener, so I'm not even close to catching up on all your episodes. But I just wanted to say thanks for the great show. I feel like you guys get the reason that I like history. Because it's just stories. Infinitely mm-hmm. long 100% realistic, plot hole free stories with drama and adventure and mystery better than any book or movie because it's real. Mm-hmm. You can learn about it, then go and literally touch it. Okay, I'll stop gushing now. My point is, <laughs> although I'm pretty sure Eric would be really upset if you touch some artifacts in the museum, but. <laughs> if you're wearing gloves under a controlled environment, I'm okay with it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to add in, you can't get the history without going, hi, story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my point is that what makes your show great is that you do these stories justice by telling them like the epic sagas that they are. Keep up the good work, guys. P.S. I know 
I listen to any NOH too much because I'm starting to dream about ancient Egypt and Boudicca and the Incas. <laughs> that That's my whole dream uh, uh, words. Yes. Let me try that again. Let me try that again. I also dream of those things. Uh, I'm go. pretty sure you also just hallucinate those things. I'm pretty sure we all actually look like Egyptians to you currently. This is just the, the glaze that your life is in. Yeah. Well, I'm glad somebody finally noticed. Yeah. That's why uh, I have such a hard time reading because it's all hieroglyphics. We just got so... <laughs> That's right! That makes sense! We just I'm got not... actually dyslexic. <laughs> we, we just got so much feedback the all last... Feedback. Uh, because not one day later, Shark and Go Rach wrote us back talking about how she loved hearing her feedback on the show, that how much it gave her a huge grin across her face the whole time. That she's going to grin again. Um, she could be grinning she right did, now probably. Because we invited her on the show. She was talking about her dissertation. It's not for her PhD. Um, it's a, just a paper that she was writing. Um, she's from Europe. So we retract our offer. I think dissertation is <laughs> However, a different connotation. There's an than interesting Europe. phenomenon where if Brian believes it, it will come true. You know, she's got a PhD. She's paid her dues. <laughs> Booyah. There we go. In the pocket. And by dues, I mean lots and lots of tuition money. Yep. So uh, in, in that case, I have a PhD as well. Or actually the, the And how cool the is it that she's talking about how specifically... <laughs> she said she states specifically how art, culture, and religion has altered our view of the skull. Like, I just... I just, I love that on so many levels. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. fantastic. We have a kindred spirit out there. So we're going to end actually on one more, which is Alista's second uh, email, which says, Pirates and teachers and Spaniards, oh my. Uh, Hi there, history nerds. It's me again, uh, the American in Spain, as I previously referred to myself. I dropped the line a few days ago. I uh, just wanted to give a huge thumbs up. But since I have come across two episodes in my quest to catch up, that both really struck chords with me, and I felt like I owed it to you guys, who I now creepily almost think of as my friends, since you talk to me practically every day. That's not uh, creepy. We're You're not giving friend. you hair samples. We were, we're not wait. giving you hair samples. We're or not? Or, or, I gotta stop saying Stop doing nails. that, Eric. Oh, God. Anyway, she continues uh, <laughs> to write a little bit more to express my appreciation in a more verbose way. Also, I think that these topics are fascinating, and I'm going to word vomit my enthusiasm a little bit. Uh, hope I'll you get find, you a bucket. Hope you find some of it interesting. Before I jump into what I anticipate will be a very lengthy message, I have a small plea, if you will. You see, you're about to do part two of the history of pirates. I adore pirates. I also adore your show, and my birthday is coming up on the 17th. Some coincidences simply cannot be ignored. So please, 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 if this doesn't get lost in a pile of emails... Can you find time in the episode? I would be beyond thrilled to get a small shout out as an early birthday present. Well, we are uh, late. This is a belated birthday present yes, we, because we, we already recorded that episode by the time that we got your feedback. One yeah. day before your birthday. We're so sorry. However, if we had known that beforehand, we would have totally done it then. Better late than never, however. So, ladies and gentlemen, happy birthday to you. Yar. May the scurvy pass you. Yar. Happy birthday, dear Alista. Happy birthday to you. We've got cabin fever. We've got cabin fever. And many more. And possibly syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and there you have it, folks. Clearly, we have no shame. No. Um, if no. you would like us to sing you happy birthday, uh, <laughs> Don't email us. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one and only time that's happening on the show. However, if you like want we... us to perform at a bar mitzvah, we're totally down for that. Uh, yeah, well, we're, you know, 50 bucks an hour. Yeah. Um, we have a, a barbershop trio <laughs> because we killed the other guy. Oh. <laughs> he kept singing out of harmony. It's so hard. It's so it's annoying so when you have one guy. One guy. Just, one guy who was sharp. <laughs> Swear. Anyway, those, those quartets—they're vicious. They're cutthroat. <laughs> anyway, Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners uh, how they can give us feedback since we have read so much of it already? Well, we've decided to actually go really low tech, so the best way to do it is with tin cannon string. Uh, oh, we're also yeah. accepting now Westerosi Raven. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, br- yeah, Brian finally got on Game of Thrones. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, and now that's all he talks about, as if, <laughs> as if he's like totally hip with it now. <laughs> I'm late to the game, but You're you know what? Super late to the game. <laughs> I'm caught up though. That's I'm good. so caught up. That is good. true. Good, good for you. Um, My watch is ended. That's all I'm saying. So uh, spoilers. Yeah, sh- spoilers. No. They don't know who said that line. Anyway. You guys can actually reach us if you go to nerdonomy.com, click that talk to us button, or you can also hit us up on any of our social media um, avenues. Just search for Nerdonomy on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You will find us. I promise you that. Um, and while you're kicking around on our website, if you're feeling so generous, go ahead and hit that donate button. Maybe, maybe just give it a little bit of cash money to keep this thing going. We'd really appreciate it. Um, but more than anything, the thing that we appreciate the most is you going out and spreading the word of nerd like a bird turd. Um, we would love it if you continue to tell your friends about our awesome podcast as Andy so did with uh, with her fellow orangutans and whatnot. So and clearly, not, it not is unlike, infectious. Yeah, yeah, well, not unlike bird turds. Just drop our podcast from, uh, uh, you know, telephone poles on yeah. cars. Yeah, that yeah. works too. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which it's, the internet does kind of like do anyway, but mm-hmm. in a more metaphysical um, <laughs> sense. Um, <laughs> uh, at any rate. As we approach episode 150, I do want to thank you guys for being one of the 5,000 listeners that we now have on our show. Approximate. Could be even more. We don't know. Could be even more. That's true. But I'm rounding it because analytics are sometimes sketchy. But nevertheless, we started at like 10. And I'm really zero, but 10 was like our friends. So we said, hey, listen to our podcast. Um, and they were actual podcast listeners. We still have friends who were like, what the hell is a podcast? Um, who haven't listened yet. So yep. um, you're doing better than them. And we care about them a lot more. And we care about you, too. So I'm just saying, thank you. Anyway, uh, it is that time. So until we meet again, (laughs) stay nerdy into into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Goodbye. Later. So yeah, that was a good episode. It was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, damn it! What? <sighs> I forgot to mention the biggie died on Everest too. What? what? Yeah. Ah, oh, wouldn't be perfect. Wait, not Biggie did not also die on Everest. That's just ridiculous. You're, yeah. You're totally... No, really. It's spelled B E E G I. Biggie. Is that is that for real? No. <laughs> You're a jerk. <laughs> I hate you. Oh, I know. Your trolling has become notorious. Yeah. Oh!